Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. It helps other people know about the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to the show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. We are live with Dennis Hegstad. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me on here. Yeah, man. I'm so excited to have you on. You've been making a lot of news lately, actually. So you bought an app, you sold something, you've had a, a company that you exited prior. Why don't we just start off with a quick minute on kind of who you are, and then we'll get into it. Yeah. So I've been in e-commerce since 2008. No, 2009, I launched my first e-commerce store. Fast forward 12 years or till 2018. So I guess nine years. And we, my co-founder and I started building Shopify apps. The first one we built was a text message marketing app called LiveRecover. We sold it about three years into our journey last year, March 2021. And then I bought another Shopify app called OrderBump. And just recently sold that one about 90 days ago. Did you like did you get into this? Did you kind of fall into it? Did you have a bunch of failures prior? Like what was your kind of journey to getting to the starting point? Tons of failures for sure. Luckily had a few successes like early on, which kind of like kept the momentum and maybe the overly ambitious attitude going, just because when you have one win and five failures, you still have one win. And maybe that one win floats the five failures to the next win, right? So started off making like meme pages on Twitter back in like 2010. I had a startup then, a photo sharing app that I was trying to raise money for. This was before Instagram had launched. So we raised a small amount of capital. We built a website. We tried to do photo sharing with RevShare. So we pay our users to share pictures. So we were trying to be the YouTube monetization program of picture sharing in 2010. It was called YesPix, but we raised some money, got to a tens of thousands of users, but we didn't build a mobile app. And then Instagram came out and we were just like, we lost. <laughs> and uh, we just threw in the towel because we couldn't, the amount of money we'd have to raise after that and the head start that they had, we just knew it was unfortunately not, not going to be a situation where we could compete. And so that was a flop. But from that kind of kept doing Twitter meme pages, grew into utilizing those pages to monetize through ad networks. And then that got me into building like more software to monetize my accounts without having to go to an ad, an ad network. I'm like, I want to be the ad network. So the Twitter meme network, because that, that's something that's that kind of big today also. Are you, so you're talking for the listener, you're talking about having a page where you're basically an influencer, but you're not a person on the stage. It's like a thing. Like, uh, exactly. Know. Yeah. So I, I think like, you know, at the beginning, you know, I'm, it's like, hmm, you can only post about so much on your own personal account until it becomes like spammy and annoying. And most people like want, like love memes. But then again, there's like food porn, house porn, car, you know, gentleman cars or just cars of the world. There's house, you know, amazing houses, whatever. There's like every shit girls say and like, you know, what just things about sex or this and that. And then like all of a sudden I spent years on it, but starting in 2010. And by 2013, I had about 12 million followers across these 15 wow. pages. So they're all about half a million to 2 million followers on each page. And so those were able to drive a lot of clicks from these pages. So I would post ads, but I'd post like 12 to 15 memes or photos a day and videos. And then I would blend in ads for every three posts would be an ad, right? And so 
those are generating tens of thousands to eventually hundreds of thousands of unique clicks a day, which, you know, you could charge 50 cents a click or 30 cents or five cents, depending on where the traffic was going. And so that led me to building software that was, you know, able to bring in those brand deals for me, but also to all these other friends I had that had meeting pages because we just wanted to have the deal flow ourselves, opposed to like waiting for deals to come to us. That is a really cool uh, kind, of, kind of first gig. And then how did you get from there to SaaS and, and, and uh, e-commerce SaaS? So I did e-commerce back on the MySpace, on MySpace, like through those days. But when MySpace died out, I jumped to Twitter and then I kind of got like out of e-commerce. I cared more about trying to do a startup and software. And then through these meme pages, we eventually got to a point where we were building websites and advertising. Google banned some of these websites. So then we're like, crap, there's like a lot of our offers or campaigns are now gone. And we didn't, we weren't like sophisticated enough to hire like an outbound brand sales team. And so we're like, let's own our own offers, which was basically launching e-commerce stores again, and then getting Twitter influencers to promote the e-commerce stores and paying them a a revenue split on the gener, you know, on the traffic that they brought in. So that got basically went from like e-commerce to, to memes and then branding and then like brand deals through these pages and then back to e-commerce through meme pages. And then I ended up selling all the meme pages and just realizing like you can just buy all this traffic. You don't need to run and manage the pages if you want to do it at scale. You can just buy all the traffic you want. So sold the meme pages and went double down on e-commerce, but more drop shipping kind of style stuff. This was about 2016, 2015. We were not drop shipping, but importing private labels. So buying products that were viral on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr, BuzzFeed, and then making our own version of that and then fulfilling from the United States with a third-party logistics company. So somewhere that we would send our product, we would run ads and they would essentially handle everything for us outside of the you know, okay. advertising website. The, the, is, is e-commerce, is there a way to do e- e-commerce that's not such a heavy lift or is it just really kind of a much different business from software? Definitely different than software just because you have, unless you're drop shipping, right? Drop shipping is the only way. And I think it's a good way to start and validate a product or a business opportunity. But like with software, you build hopefully one good piece of software. That's your core kind of MVP, meaning like your minimal viable product. And then you launch. And from there, if it's if you spend a decent amount of time or you're considerate about how you build things, that could be the piece of software that lasts for like years and services hundreds of customers, if not thousands of customers that you make money from every month. Whereas with e-com, you have to invest in inventory. You might be sitting on the inventory. You still have to pay. You know, there's, you're rolling in as you grow bigger, you're rolling in your profits into more inventory, but you're still going to have to pay taxes on the sales and the profits, even though you don't have the profits in your hand because they're sitting in inventory. So basically you're chasing this like snowball effect that yes, like in the end, like your brand is big enough with e-commerce, you can stop running paid media and ads. And then hopefully you start to recoup all of that inventory and and profit that like, I think that they're wildly different businesses, but with e-commerce, you can scale faster, right? You can go, you can find a viral product and go from zero in sales to like hundreds of thousands of dollars, even a million in sales in the matter of months. Whereas with SaaS and software, like that's not really going to happen unless you're enterprise and you're like, cool, we just sold three licenses to Dell and the military and Google and there were 400K each. And I was, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's different. But most software companies aren't going from zero to, to millions in the first months or even the first year. Right. So tell me about Live Recover. So I, I was running ads at a relatively, like, I think the biggest company on Shopify called Fashion Nova. 
And I was consulting their, on their paid media and giving some strategy advice. And this was at the peak of like apps becoming bigger in Shopify and kind of becoming more known. And so from some, some of the apps that were installed there, I was talking to a buddy who is my, was my CTO and co-founder of Live Recover. And we were, he, he just had the idea, honestly, it wasn't me. He's like, hey, we should do text message marketing, but with live people on the other end so that when you actually have a question, there's a response opposed to just a bot that doesn't say anything. Um, and I'm like, sweet, I can't <laughs> write code, but I know how to read code. And I know like some stuff about where to find the documentation. And he's like, I'll write all the code. You just get customers. So then like, you know, a couple of weeks later, he's like, all right, can you get, get customers ready? And then two weeks later, we launched a beta. We had 25 customers in day one. And then fast forward three years later, we sold the business to a private equity firm and a, an emerge kind of a merger with another platform called Voyage. That's really cool. I mean, you make it sound sound like like it was sort of a three year uphill journey. Uh, well, yeah, we got lucky in the case that, or in the scenario that, like, you know, it was COVID. We launched in 2018, so it wasn't like we launched during COVID. But in 2018, until when COVID started, SMS was still kind of new. So we were not new in tense sense that like people didn't know what it was. It was making its cycle like a return in the cyclical thing that like SMS marketing was cool with ringtones in like 2000, and then it became relevant again in 2018. But like in 2019, you were still a little early to SMS. And by 2020, SMS was the hottest thing. And then at the end of 2020 to 2021, it was like, because of COVID, everything was being done over SMS. And and every messenger was blowing up from like Instagram DMs to, you know, every, I mean, you can see it between, this isn't what we did. We just did text message, but with Slack, Discord, Telegram, Signal, there's literally so many and there's an infinite amount of messaging channels, right? Instagram, Facebook Messenger. And so we caught a good tailwind. We were early and we were one of the few apps that were bootstrapped and did not raise investor money in our category. So we were you know, favorable, I think, to acquirers because they're like, hey, you guys are part of the conversation, but you didn't raise tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Why not? And so at that point, we're like, huh, it's probably a decent time to take chips off the table if we're not you know, married to doing SMS marketing for the rest of our life. And if somebody else is thinking that they can take it to the next stage. So why, why didn't you raise VC? My co-founder built the app himself with one engineer in like two and a half weeks and everybody else needed to raise millions of dollars and hire a team of 30. And so for me, I'm like, you know, they needed a lot of people to get customers. I got 25 on my own before we even launched. So I'm like, I think we don't need any help. Uh, I think we know what we're doing. And that was just the attitude. It's kind of like, why do we need a raise venture? We didn't really want to build a hundred million dollar a year business. We were like, we can have a million, multi million dollar profitable business, and we don't have to have any stress. And if it gets to a point where it becomes stressful, then we should sell it. That's awesome. I I, I wish more people had that attitude because uh, that that that's a winning attitude. So, how did you get twenty five clients on board before you had a product? Partially Twitter. I think probably half came from Twitter, but also because I was living in Los Angeles and I was running, you know, paid and consulting for Fashion Nova and I had a few of my own brands, you know, I wasn't like crushing it per se, but we were doing some months, three, four hundred thousand a month in revenue on my on my store. And I was doing some trending products that were I was launching a few stores at a time. And so I had other friends who were doing the brand thing and they're like, damn, sometimes I just want to chase trends. And I'm like, no, you don't. A brand is more is a better long-term play. But they kind of knew that I was 
kind of knew what I was doing. And so I think it was easy for me to say, Hey, I just started using this app for my stores and they're bringing in a lot of good extra revenue. Would you be open to trying it? And it was at the time our app was free. We didn't charge any monthly fee. We just took 5% commission on the revenue that we brought you. So essentially we're like, we'll guarantee you a 20 X return and there's, and we'll charge you after we bring you the sales. So it meant like, you know, it was hard to grow the business in terms at the beginning with ads because you didn't know what a, cus- a customer was worth. But when you went to like 25 targeted people who are kind of like friends and their brands are reputable, they're not going to like run off without paying a bill and we needed customer feedback. So I just, yeah, I just rounded up, you know, a handful of people and I got 25 within a couple of weeks or less. And the day the link was ready, they all were, you know, willing to install because there was no risk for them. So yeah. It sounds like like you're like these ten years that you're describing or seven years really was like a step up journey. Like you start figuring out the advertising game, the traffic acquisition game, then you get into the e-commerce game, then you kind of do do the picks and shovels for the e-commerce, then you do it for other people. Like was that methodical at all, or you just kind of stumbled along? Definitely not intentional. Like I think at the beginning, I was like, I'm moving to LA. I was 19 or 20, moving to Los Angeles from Austin, Texas. I'm like, you know what? I got an e-commerce store. I'm doing $10,000 in revenue a month. I'm, I figured shit out. I'm going to LA to make it. I'm going to make, I'm going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or some shit. I don't know. I was just like, I'm going to build a startup and sell it for a lot of money. And then I worked for Jason Calacanis. I realized like how hard and how like much work it would be to have a huge startup. So I realized that that really wasn't actually what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be like someone who was my own boss with people I liked working with and never really shoot for this like billion dollar. It's just like the probability is so low. I'm happy to have like three wins that are all considered like doubles or home runs and not grand slams because competition is just too much whenever the money is more of the moat than the product. Right. And so, yeah, like before I was just trying to figure things out and I never really had any guidance. And so I just kind of, I don't know wanted to keep doing more. And now I'm at a place where I'm, I think I'm a little bit more mature and I, I understand how to do things a little bit more properly. Before I didn't really care as what I was doing. I just wanted to make money. And now I like care a little bit more about what I put my name on and how, yeah. it's, how it's, you know, messaged and perceived to other people. Yeah. One more question, just tactical about Live Recover. How did you... So you said the difference was you didn't have AI, you had actual people on the other side of the conversation. How did you get those people? Like, who were they? What, like, what, what did they get paid? That kind of thing. So we had call it offshore team in the Philippines that we had hired directly in house who were amazingly talented and you know affordable, sure, but like we paid you know multiple hundred percent higher than the minimum wage there. But we built some really not overly sophisticated, but it grew as the business grew as we learned how to optimize it. But we built like a great chat CMS on the back end. So like on desktop, you're typing from a computer in this chat CMS that's got all these macros that can pull in things like, you know, maybe it's about, hey, click here to send a welcome message or click here to to respond about a failed payment or, hey, did you try PayPal versus this? Or we could pull in all this data. So you could be doing like 10 conversations at once and it wouldn't really reflect on the customer because you're still able to like manage all these conversations. And so we scaled to serving thousands of brands with just a team of about 10 texting agents, which really? in the end was really, was I think what, you know, part of like what we built that was pretty cool was more, not just the dashboard and the managed stuff and like the segmentation and all the stuff like that's, it was actually like the chat CMS stuff, I think was pretty cool in my opinion. 
That's really cool. And then were you seeking an acquisition or they came to you knocking on your door? Yeah, we, we had about three or four. We had one person in three months into the business try to buy it. Like in 2018 on New Year's Eve, this kind of big guy on Twitter that buys businesses was like, hey, we'd be interested in buying your app. And I'm like, it's only four months old or six months old. So probably not yet. The number wasn't interesting. And we were just like, we have a lot of work to do. Then like six months later, they try to buy it for more, four times more. And we're like, no, we've grown 300% since then. And then we waited another year, which was the end of Q 2020, Q3. They tried to buy us again for a more, a very reasonable or realistic number that we we're like, okay, yeah, this is it. We're doing this. That didn't work out. It took like 90 days of us dragging that out. And we're like, okay, we need to get back to work. This is clearly not... You can't run a business and do a deal when you're a two-person team plus your texting agent team, right? So we got back to work and that deal had fallen through. And then about 90 days after that had fallen through, we got an offer from three companies at once that were all bigger than the one that had fallen through. And so we were like, okay, this is probably... We actually have optionality here. We should do some research on who's giving us LOIs and we should pick the one that makes the most sense for us. And we ended up doing that and ended up being good partners. That's that's unreal. Uh, and, and and you were able to kind of run the business and, and, and grow it that whole time from offer to offer. And so you, you had the acquisition. And then how long did you break between Live Recover and, or, and Order Bump? We had a six-month win or like a six-month sort of transitional phase where we helped the team, the new team that took over Live Recover and came in and the, and the other platforms sort of understand all of the code base and the customer service processes and the ins and outs and how to utilize all the you know admin tooling and everything we had built. So it was about six months. And once that was done, you know, call it, we closed March 2021. Six months later is what, September. October, I went to New York to meet with the order bump founder. November 2nd, we were closed. That's unreal. And so just one more thing on, on, on the, on the uh, live recovery, you were guys were like a tiny, like what, like a three or four person team in, in the States. Is that what it was? Just me and my co-founder who lives here in Austin. Unreal. So just the two of you and then offshore workers. And, and would you, if you had held on to the company for another, let's say two, three, four years, would you have needed to hire others? Or was it really kind of a low maintenance type product? We were at the point that we were like preparing to reinvest a lot into building a bigger business because we're like, you know what? I think if we hired us, you know, I was doing everything and so was my co-founder. So it was like, he was doing everything technical. Also like just doing front end development, back end development, design, managing all the infrastructure, security, uh, any technical fixes or bugs for customers. And then I'm doing everything else, which was like, okay, we need to hire. We had one co- contract engineer named, who was with us for like a year. But he was in, you know, in Europe. And then we're like, okay, let's hire two more engineers. Let's hire a designer so we can test new product iterations and maybe, you know, conversion rate stuff for onboarding and just increasing time in the dashboard and whatever else. We need a salesperson. We need a person who might be able to go, you know, community manager. So I don't have to spend all my time in groups and on Reddit and on Twitter and this and that. But when we were already laying all that stuff out, we had conversation and sort of LOIs from the, the groups that wanted to buy us. And so they kind of put a freeze on our hiring during the process of the diligence of the business. So we had prepared to like build a bigger business, but we weren't going to grow and, and force ourselves to compete and like compare ourselves to the other companies that had raised venture. We were going to grow at our own pace. Right. Okay. So now order bumps, you go in, you buy the company. What was the idea? Like what attracted you to order bump? Why did you want to buy it? And, and that, that sort of thing. The business was simple. 
And I like that it wasn't trying to do everything. And we, this is how we com- like explain live recover to other customers on calls is like, I would say we're a steak knife and we're not a Swiss army knife. We're just the best at doing this one thing. And if you need a steak knife, like you use us for abandoned checkout recovery with humans, but you use another SMS app for collecting phone numbers and doing campaigns and doing this and doing that. Any automation tools, we're not saying use us over them. We're saying use us with them. And it's so that that positioned us in a way to win. And I think order bump has a similar positioning is that like they just focused on the in checkout and post purchase upsell. Other tools try to do in cart on product page in the checkout, post-purchase. And they're like, okay at each thing, but not amazing or great at one thing. And so order bump was, you know, affordable enough in my eyes, like the scale of the business wasn't too big where I couldn't afford to buy it or that it would be overly risky. And so, and I liked the founder a lot. So I think all of those things, it just made it a, an interesting opportunity. And it was owned by an agency that wasn't a fully focused on the SaaS business. So I think it, you know, when you have a business that's call it doing I don't know, five to 10 million a year or something. And then you have an app that's doing like less than 300K a year, 200K a year. You're probably not going to reinvest all your money into the app whenever that's kind of your like side thing. And so I'm like, cool, someone else's side thing could be my main thing. And that's, that's sort of how it worked out. And so that was a 90 day, it was April 21st that you announced that it was acquired. So what like describe that 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 90 days if you can or of like you know 30 60 90 what what happened there So it was actually it's I don't know I'm, I think I can say I can't give like specifics let's just say like within 30 days of buying the app I closed in the first week of November by the first week of December I had an LOI and so I'm like okay I don't know this is pure luck but I think that I would be stupid to sell the or to not sell this if they're willing to pay a price that makes it clearly worth it for me. And during that time, I plan on growing the business anyway. So it was it was kind of the business gave me an LOI during a time which they knew that we wouldn't move, which is the holidays right after Thanksgiving and Black Friday. But it was also to lock in interest in an app so that I couldn't go negotiate probably with other people because that's pretty standard. If you get an LOI, you can't go shop the deal around. And so I think it was a smart move for them. It also made me excited. And I'm like, okay, I can grow the business by the time we get to diligence and hopefully get more money because I'm going to grow the business anyway. And worst case, after this is done, I could just still say no. But by the time that diligence was done and it was serious, I, I thought these guys may have been bullshit, to be honest. But then they're like, news is out about our fundraising and like, here's the proof and this and that, and here's who we are. They're a little bit mysterious. And then I'm like, oh, this is legit. Talk to some of the other apps that have been acquired already kind of behind the scenes. And yeah, it ended up just feeling like I wanted to learn how to be, I've never been a part of a team. I've always been like a two man, one man kind of army that like doesn't exist. You know what I mean? And so this is a group of apps in a roll up called App Hub. And everybody on the team is all the founders that have built and sold their businesses to app are like super incredible. So for me, I was like, yeah, I think it's interesting for me to do this. And I've been there since the end of February and still here. That's really cool. So yeah, this company's app hub, uh, 60 million in fresh funding. That's when you announced that, that they'd acquired your company. So are you a part of, are you still running order bump? Are you on like other apps now? So still order bump as there's a bit of, you know, like, work to do on the product. I'd like to see it grow a little bit as a product. And then hopefully that, you know, by by default or grows the business a little bit. But but yeah, you know, the goal is I hope is 
and that's a this is a personal question. I don't have the answer to yet, but is am I going to stay after my my obligation to App Hub is done for Order Bump, which is coming up, or do I go and do my own thing? But you know, I am looking at like the market of Shopify now. All of a sudden, it's not just like a bunch of indie indie devs and and a few funded apps. It's like there's some serious VC money in the ecosystem. There's a ton of roll up money from private equity and people raising debt. And it's like, I think we might be in a stage where it's going to be tough to compete unless you have a lot of capital. And for using your own, that can be a scary place to compete. So I think I might, you know, get under the wing and just stay with AppUp for a while. But regardless, I, I, I do plan on staying and just working on Shopify apps for at least the next few years still. Yeah. So what do you think? And there's a bunch of companies that are sort of rolling up Shopify apps and, and buying Shopify companies. What do you think like makes a successful... Or let me take a step back. If you were to reverse engineer and, and help like a listener or a young entrepreneur think about the opportunity in Shopify apps, what, what makes a good app? I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of, there's a lot of apps, right? There's 7,500 plus apps. But how many of those apps are quality, which is sort of what you're asking. There's a very few because there's a, the, the, the barrier to entry for apps is low. It's kind of like comparing it to a direct-to-consumer direct kind of e-commerce store. Do you go drop shipping or do you build a brand? Well, it's easier to start drop shipping. You just like basically do the most minimal amount of work and you just start selling stuff. And like you'll get customers quick, but like are they going to stay and last a long time or even come back? Probably not. Whereas if you build a brand, you might have something that takes a little bit more work and is not really as replicable, you know, can't really replicate it as easy. And, and then you have something that's viable and potentially long lasting and something that you can sell. So I think if you look at the ecosystem, Shopify Plus is the most expensive plan on Shopify. There's multiple plan types. Shopify Plus, most of the merchants on there are doing at least a few million a year up to tens or hundreds or even billion a year in revenue. And so that plan, those, those stores, those merchants, generally have an in-house developer or someone on retainer or a dev agency who helps with ongoing fixes and tweaks. If your app can be built or an agency development developer, someone in their ecosystem can say, uh, I can build that over a weekend, then you probably don't have a business that's going to last because any brand will just say, hey, why would, we don't need an app for that. We can just build that in-house. Sure, we, maybe we don't have a dashboard and that's okay because like we're just trying to bun- make bundles or are we just trying to you know do this simple thing and so I think if your app is like that simple then maybe it's like not gonna last or it would be tough to, to build a long-term business on but if you can build something that an in-house developer is like ah okay I don't want to spend my time doing all of that work and they think it's like worth paying the few hundred a month or whatever your pricing is even less and there's clear value because of the amount of effort you put in up front, that can be perceived effort too, right? Like for us, people like there's no way, you know, your team must be huge. It has to be 30 people. It's just me and one engineer. But it's like, well, I have a rock star co-founder. There are there are rock stars out there, right? There are people who are super efficient and there are people who are okay. And that's just how things go. But if your perceived product value is high uh, and it can't be easily replicated in like a weekend hackathon, then I think you have something that, you know, that could last. But again, like that's a good question to you know, ask merchants about, right? You can learn from them and like even talk to people's in-house devs to decide like what they, what they find important and what they don't. Yeah. I I would think that, that in the Shopify ecosystem, anything that obviously anything that helps you make more money, which is a lot of what the apps try to do, but do, do they do it successfully? And do they do it to the point where a, you can see three, four, five, six X return on your spend 
And B, it's something that you really couldn't do that you know yourself that easily. So the two areas, I mean, SMS and then order bump. And sorry, what exactly does order bump do? It, it's order bump it, does upsells. Yeah, so we provide like it's like the the easiest way to compare it is like when you're in the line at the grocery store at the very end of checkout, you see like candy and random little hand sanitizer and knickknacks, right? So obviously these would be relevant upsells of your brand selling shoes. You might upsell laces or socks. Uh, right. But we show them in the checkout. So sort of where you're putting in your customer information and credit card payment information, selecting shipping, but also post-purchase, which is after you've paid, you might say, hey, we saw you bought you know, one pair of jeans for, for 50. We'll offer you the same pair of jeans in another color for 30% off. And you don't even have to put your credit card information in again, because it's kind of in an escrow period. This token is stored temporarily. So just click here and we'll add it to your order. But again, like, this was sort of the opportunity for me was that some engineers that I had spoken to and brands said, Hey, we like order bump, but you know, one of our devs built something similar in house. And yeah, we don't have the, the filtering and the campaign segmentation. You can't run analytics and reports and that, but like we, it, it, that made me feel like, okay, we need to do some more product development. Cause I don't want people saying like, yeah, we think it's worth the 99 bucks a month, but like maybe not, <laughs> you know? So just something that you know I'm conscious of for sure. And I think that some people are building apps for three or $500 and then they're like, oh, I can't get any customers. I'm like, yeah, because your app is built in a day. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you, you, you did this awesome thread on Twitter, uh, Shopify is nurturing their ecosystem, not eating it. And you've, you've given a top 10 of these apps. I want to get into kind of one or two of these highlights, but let me ask you this, this question. Do you think there's a risk that someone builds a really dominant app and then Shopify effectively either copies it, kills it, or does something like that. Is that something that, that, that can happen? I think that's sure, yeah. But I think, you know, Shopify is in, is in the business of generating more revenue on platform. And if apps can do that for them, like they don't want to get rid of that. They want to sell the story of how much GMV, which is gross merchandise value that's sold on their platform. And so if more people are helping encourage that encourage that I don't see why they'd want to kind of like stop that because I don't know of any scenario where Shopify takes a percentage of your sale outside of like they have the SaaS fee for your subscription for your plan and then there's probably some interchange you know fees they make on every sale that's processed through Stripe but like apps take a percentage of revenue a percentage of every sale plus a 30 cents per order plus this and plus that and so it would be smart for Shopify to buy some apps, but at the same time, like they've, they have their own email service. It's not like Klaviyo is not the dominant email player because Shopify launched Shopify email. People still prefer Klaviyo. Shopify is not the best at making every app. They're best at being the infrastructure and the platform. And it's in their best interest to buy apps versus try to like lose all that trust with apps by trying to like copy them or, or whatever the case is. But at the same time, it would be kind of naive to think that Shopify is not going to launch some things that they should have as call it a native product feature, right? Like I think bundles is the most obvious one. The fact that you have to use like all these different apps to make a bundle, which is essentially just multiple products in one kind of skew or three skews in one kind of like <laughs> parent skew. And this is, this is where it gets all messy. And so I think, you know, Shopify all the apps on Shopify are like three times bigger, four or five times bigger than Shopify as a whole in terms of, right. you know, revenue generated and, and GMV driven. And so I think, you know, Shopify will probably acquire more apps, but they acquired one recently that was called Dovetail that was for influencer marketing and they made it free, which 
to me, I'm like, why would you make it free? You can still own it and, and run the app and charge money since people were willing to, but maybe this is just kind of part of their strategy on, you know, more usage, more, more people are getting exposed to Shopify. But yeah, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not worried about risk from Shopify because in the end, I haven't seen them do any apps better than the apps that are doing it themselves, right? Yeah. So let's let's take a look here. I'd love to just kind of take one of these as an example and have you kind of unpack it. There's Attentive, Clavio, Yachtpo, Recharge, Printful. Any any app in particular that you want to kind of dig into a little a little more deeply and kind of tell us what what makes it cool and what makes it special? Yeah. So I mean, I went. I did these sort of based on. I went through this thread because. I'm like, man, you know, there's a lot of apps on Shopify that are huge. And these are all this, these, this data might be a little bit older now since the market's changed. And this was all on their previous fundraising data from like last, late last year. But, you know, I think when you look at Attentive, they've raised $865 million. Their last, last raise valued at 10 billion. Clavio's raised 678 million. They're valued at 10 billion. That's two, the top two apps are valued at, last valued at 20 billion. Well, maybe that's decayed a little bit since then. And together they do close to what? Almost a billion a year in revenue. It's like almost what Shopify does alone with just the two top apps. Then you have Yapo, then you have Recharge, Printful, right? Each of those are 2.5, 2.5 billion, another one at a billion. It's, this is just 10 apps, right? There's right. at least the next 90 to 100 that are at least making up probably another 50 to 100% of the top 10. And so I think, yeah, just looking at all the apps, there's a lot of opportunity still, and they become too big for Shopify to really... I mean, they would destroy their ecosystem if they did something to one of these top apps, right? So I think it's in their best interest. They're investing in apps. Shopify has a thing called Shopify Accelerate, where they do VC investments into apps. So I don't know. I, I'm pro Shopify. Obviously, I'm biased because I've had some success there. And I, I, I personally have an opinion that the team is... you know. Are nice. They're responsive. They're, they're they listen. They're they're smart. They're good people. But you know, there's always risk. But if you if you get big enough, you also shouldn't just go Shopify only at that scale. Most of these apps, sure, they probably have a large user density on Shopify and revenue density on Shopify. But of course, it makes sense to like diversify and start doing Salesforce and go up market if that's part of your strategy and product, or even go off Shopify to custom integrations or whatever the case may be. I think you know all the top 10 apps are not just reliant on Shopify. What do, what do you think you're really good at? Because you mentioned earlier that you're not a coder. Sounds like you're maybe a salesman, a marketer. You know, you, you understand acquisition. If there's one thing that you say you do really, really well, what, what is that? I think it's probably marketing and product, but a little bit of a blend of both because knowing what products are need to be marketed and what about the product and just like, you know, that I think is the, the come have a lot of crossover, but I've always liked building stuff, which is hard when you're not able to write code and you have to pay people to build what you want. But knowing how to communicate what you want to build and why you're going to build it and laying out sort of like, hey, here's every page, here's all the columns that we need in the database, here's all the API documentation for where all the calls need are going to come from, here's how each page should function. A little bit of prototyping, so you have a rough idea of like what elements need to be on the page. Like those are things that I do. But am I in the code deploying to GitHub and writing production-ready scripts and apps? No. But do I understand how things work? And I am I able to have that conversation with engineers and a, anyone on the technical side? Yes. And I want to talk to designers and things like that. But I'm also happy to find out who owns the 
you know, the holding company that owns all the apps or the stores that we want to target and find out how to get in touch with them and get them on the phone or how to get Harley from Shopify to get on a phone call with me because we need clarification on something or like that's, I don't really know what that is. I think it's just kind of like <laughs> building and, and yeah, product and marketing, I guess, but it's, it's, called, it. it's called entrepreneurship. Dennis. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I've never had a full team. So I've always liked doing most of the stuff, but if I, didn't have to do a sales call or demo call again, that would be okay. But I'm unfortunately good at it. And I don't know if it's because I care about the stuff that I build. So you kind of have to be good at it. And you're not selling to someone, you're just telling them what you're doing and in a way that maybe you're passionate. But yeah, I guess it's kind of a tough question. I like building stuff. Are you ever tempted after all these years, over 10 years of kind of building digital stuff, you know, software? Do you ever just want to like do something totally offline? Is that, has that entered your mind? I mean, yeah, but I don't like, I don't know if it's like either or I think you can do, or like, you know, you could do both. I would love to have, and probably not for like pure profit or focus, but like, I'd love to have a medicinal marijuana farm someday. And even just like looking at where, like I took my dog to a boarding place, uh, a pet hotel last week. It was $110 a night. He was in this room that was like a dorm room with a TV and all this stuff. And there was like 40 dogs there. I'm like, wow, $110 a night. They're packed. They had to do an interview for my dog to go there and to make sure he was like friendly enough with the other dogs. And I'm like, these guys are, packed. they had no vacancies. You can, you know, that would be awesome. Like running a dog cafe or something cool would be fun. But I love doing stuff online. I like the freedom of kind of like taking my work and having an office in the form of my laptop and my phone and just being sort of free to, free to roam. But that might change as I get older and maybe I want to have an office and build like more culture, but who knows. Yeah. I was at a birthday party for my three-year-old, one of her friend's birthdays a couple of weeks ago. And literally this thing is just a giant warehouse, picture like a Costco. And there's just like a ball pit there and you know a swing set there. And it was $1,000 for every hour and at, at, for, for, of, of the, like, you know, for whatever, a 20-kid party. And they were able to host like 10 at once. And so me and my buddy were just sitting there doing the math. We're like, they're making 30000 a day easy. And yeah, like the, the, those businesses are awesome because I grew up, you know, probably just like you. Like I grew up around digital people and online people, and but there's a whole world out there of folks that are just making money, you know, with like simple businesses, and it's a big opportunity. I agree, and, and it's I don't know if it's just because I don't want to chase so many opportunities and just kind of want to stay in my my lane of focus. But eventually, when I have you know maybe more time slash capital slash you know interest, I'd love to. There's no reason why, you know, if you have friends or family who might be interested in running a business and you can kind of help them get it off the ground and maybe invest in it and own most of it and give them some some ownership as well. And you can passively have some cash flow. I mean, I don't see why you wouldn't want to own multiple, multiple businesses if you can, but you know, I'm definitely working towards that for sure. It's just like that's why I bought order bump instead of more real estate, because the only real estate I own is my personal house. And I'm like, uh, if I put in, you know, let's say order bump was half a million dollar acquisition, half a million into real estate would get me like a two and a half million dollar property. And maybe I cash flow 3K a month off of that or 4K a month if I'm lucky, if it's a short term rental or something like that. But it's like with order bump, you know, I'm cash flowing 20 plus thousand a month. Uh, and it was like, you know, it just didn't make any sense. But that doesn't mean you do one or the other. It's like you do all of the above. Uh, you just have to find the time and be, you know, organized. Yeah. Do you, do you have aspirations to build like a Holdco? Everyone, everyone's talking about Holdcos now. And, you know, like, I mean, for, for, for good reason, is it something that, that you see in your future? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I do a little bit of angel investing, which has just been, you know, through syndicates on, uh, on AngelList through other friends who get deal flow who are smarter than me. And I'm just trying to learn. So 
probably going to lose most of that money, which is, which is part of it. But, you know, I'd love to have, you know, down the line, like some real estate that I maybe that I rent out some that's maybe it's just land that's being held or developed or, or partitioned off and sold into smaller lots, or maybe it's owning multiple businesses, but you know, that's a long-term plan for sure. I'm 33. So by the time I'm 40, if I had that, like call it multiple businesses operating that are making seven figures a year each or more then that would, that'd be great, but I'm not in a rush. Yeah. And then last thing here, tell me about Twitter. I, I don't know, like I found you on Twitter a few months ago. Have you been doing Twitter for a long time? Was it kind of a recent thing? No. Yeah. So back to like the early conversation about Twitter meme pages, like when MySpace died out, I went to Twitter and I started using it in 2009, but I didn't really post as much on my personal because I was cared more about building these accounts with the meme pages. And so once I sold all the meme pages, I always posted on my Twitter, my personal, but not like just for fun. And then in the last, you know, call it four years, maybe a little bit more, five years, started posting more about business stuff and advertising and startups. And then Cause like, that's what I care about more. I'm like, I'm getting older. I don't really, I want to like, I don't want to just follow like girls and like random news on celebrities. I don't want to pollute my mind. I want to learn and like teach when I can, but learn primarily. And so I think, you know, after selling all my meme pages in 2017, I'm like, I'm going to use my, so my personal to be like a free organic traffic if I can. Right. It's not like I have an expectation, but I think with the head start, I kind of know what to post. And so just did that for a while. And then maybe in the last few months, I started taking it more seriously after meeting people like Sam Parr, who's a friend and also someone that I respect because he's great at content and, and marketing as well. And so seeing sort of his like threads and how other people are doing posting and, and people like Nick Sharma, who's I've been friends with for 10 years. I'm like, you know what, I should maybe care about this a little bit more. It doesn't mean I have to like be so serious about it, but I should maintain a minimum amount of traffic and meaning like posts just to see like what happens. Right. And so now it's starting to yield some good numbers. And I think, I don't know what those numbers, you know, translate to, I mean, hopefully for app hub or that's how maybe app hub found me was through Twitter DMS. Right. So, Oh, I could sell a company through Twitter. What else can you do? I mean, maybe you can generate mentorship calls. If you want to do some consulting, maybe you get deal flow from investing. I don't know, but yeah, I'm definitely trying to be a little bit more conscious on it, but I'm not trying to take it too seriously either. Yeah. You can definitely sell. You can definitely raise a fund. We've seen that happen a lot of times. And yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the leverage when you have that kind of audience, it, it makes a difference. But you know, like you said, you can build it and build it and build it for years without having an end goal. It, it's just good to have. I do um, think though that the one thing that people think is like, you need a personal brand on Twitter. You need it for a big business. And I don't think that's true. It definitely can help you, but it's also for sure a distraction. And the majority of the, I would say 90%, 95% of the largest businesses are not run by a founder or CEO who has some kind of uh, large audience. And everyone's like, well, Elon Musk, it's like, ignore Elon Musk. And actually Elon Musk is only, people didn't know who Elon Musk was first. They didn't find out about Tesla through Elon. They found out about Elon through Tesla, through SpaceX, through PayPal, through Boring Company. It's the exact same thing. His companies were so big that he became big. And then just because of his personality, he was very strategic. He dated Johnny Depp's ex while they were still together. He had a kid with the famous musician Grimes. It's like, he's, he's, he knows what the hell he's doing. He's taking shots at people in the public eye and talking loudly about politicians. It's like, okay, remove him. Who are the CEOs that are, that are like used that had a personal brand first and then built a business of that scale? Not that many. It's more of the... There's like two or three that I could think of. Yeah, there, there's not a whole lot. 
Yeah, or they had a brand that got so big, right? And then they built their personal brand a little bit bigger because they had the free time and the luxury. That's more common. And then their next brand is bigger, faster, like, okay. But yeah, I think Twitter, you know, it's not, it's not the end all be all for sure. But if you have the time and the knack to do it, do it. It's not going to hurt you at all. Can only yeah. Twitter. So I would say I totally agree with you. Like, like you need to be an influencer to be a good entrepreneur. Totally not true. The other big myth, and you've just busted it today, which I love, is that you need to raise VC to you know get rich or to build a big company. And not only is that not true in tech, but it's also not true in most of life. You know, ninety percent of the people out there that are quite wealthy, they got big off cash flow, bank loans, like normal stuff. They didn't go raise you know a hundred million dollars. So it's it it is something that I think that the media we create a lot of buzz about this stuff, but it's great to have examples like like you that you know to see like no you can you can do very very well without raising a whole bunch of VC. Yeah, I mean VC is cool if you want to go for that. If you have an idea that you need VC for it, then 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 get it. But if you can't, if it's like, what's the reason that you can't build your business or get to the next level? If it's not money and it's just like, oh, I don't know the right talent. Well, it's like okay, VC is not going to solve that for you just because you have money doesn't mean you know the talent now. So I think. Yeah, you know, and and the and the competition's way crazier. I'd rather compete in an area where it's like, you know, there's nothing wrong with hitting a few singles until you're at a place where you're like, okay, now at this point, I wouldn't mind swinging for the fences for VC because I'm already secure. I have everything I need from a financial perspective. But yeah, I think it's crazy. If you don't know how to raise money, too, you're going to spend six to twelve months trying to learn how to raise money, and then you just wasted the whole time frame that your product probably was relevant, and the momentum's everything. If it takes you six to twelve months to build, and then another six to 12 months to raise. It's like, that was just two years of your life. Uh, you could have probably found the right people and maybe, you know, done it in three months without raising money, given that you had the, the talent to find. But that's the hardest part, right? If you're not technical and you're building a software company, or if you're trying to buy a business and you don't know how to audit a business and find the debt for it, or, or find partners who can help you, it's, I guess that's the benefit of, again, things like Twitter, you can learn. And also there's people out there who might be willing to get involved with you and take a little bit of risk with you. That's it. Love it, man. Where can we find you? Twitter, anywhere else? Twitter, that's it. <laughs> Just at Dennis Hegstead on Twitter, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was, uh, it was great talking to you. Good. Thanks, John. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple or Spotify lets other folks know that you love the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right.